0: Father, thank you for another morning uh, together to pour over your word and to receive it. I pray that Adam's work over the week and your filling him with the Holy Spirit would provide beneficial to us as we receive your word. I pray we'd have the wisdom to receive it well and to think of it over the morning and that it would carry us through the week. Amen. As we come to the text, we've, we have spoken much um, over our time in the last uh, year and a half or so of providence. We speak of providence all throughout the book of Esther uh, and we think of uh, providence that is God's working uh, in time and space, uh, ordaining all that comes to pass, governing all of his creatures and all of their actions and all of their outcomes. It's It's a monumental doctrine uh, one that is troubling at times as we see uh, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Uh, we see uh, natural disasters and hardship that befalls us. We experience dis- uh, uh, discouragement and hardship in our day-to-day existence or great tragedies. Providence is a hard doctrine to, 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 to lay hold of consistently. We praise it kind of when things are going well and then we wrestle against it when things are not going well. Providence is a massive doctrine of God's sovereignty and we do well to truly rest and think and meditate upon doctrine of providence and its implications. It's all across scripture and it's here also in Genesis 11 as God is providentially, once again, as we look at just the the, the concrete measurables of the text, God is providentially working in Terah's life now. Terah being the father of Abram, as was just read for us. God begins to move as he is preparing to engage in Abram's life. He is working in Terah's life. Now, when we look at the text, and we will for a a few moments coming forward, but we don't know specifically. There's not an explicit statement here in this portion of Genesis 11, telling us explicitly what motivated Terah's moving his family away from Ur, out of the land of the Chaldeans, and heading toward Canaan. So again, you're noticing that's what he's doing Uh, when he took his son, in verse 31, and then they went forth together from Ur, and they were headed toward Canaan. You may ask yourself, well, why are they leaving Ur? Well, the text doesn't say explicitly. But again, I think as careful readers, we might well receive that the ambiguity or the lack of explicit detail as to why is important information for us to grasp. Because of providence. You see, God is always, I I wish you to receive this. I I wish myself, as I join with you in the preaching of the word, I wish to receive this well. That God is always, always working in our lives. When you wake up in the morning and you turn, put your feet down on the ground, it's a new day full of promise and potential. Every day. And as you awake and you prepare for what is another providential day, recognize it as such. Meaning, God is at work in my life today. You see, as we consider providence in Terah's life, and we think his target, if we could call it that, is Abram, not Terah, Abram, the son of Terah. God's target is Abram, yet he works in Terah's life. What do we learn but that God is without limitations in the achieving of his purposes for your life. Terah is not a hindrance to God's purposes for Abram. Terah's geographical location we considered last week, and then, and then Joshua speaks to Israel to encourage them going forward. It, 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 I remember, God took Abram from the wrong side of the river. Your, your fathers lived over here, and, 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 and so doing, worshipped the wrong gods. Well, then that's it, right? No, 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 no. Remember, God took them out of there. So when we come back to this text and we see them living in Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans, we receive well that Terah's geographical location, his choice to live with his ancestors in the land of the Chaldeans, in Ur, that is, in Babylon. Terah's choice to live there, and and then his corresponding idolatry. And we know that he was an idol worshiper, the, the, the moon god. We know that because Joshua, under holy inspiration, tells us such. He worshiped false gods. But beloved, Geographical location and corresponding sin and idolatry that goes with it does not and cannot frustrate God's purposes. God has a plan for Abram. And he will fulfill it. You're here today because God has a plan for your life. And he will fulfill it. This, when we consider the, the implications of Terah and Ur and Abram and God's call, what we see here at the very beginning, and it's important that we get this part right, it's kind of what you're thinking is you're laying the, the foundation for the house that will be built across special revelation going forward. Remember, we already covered just the numerous passages of the New Testament that speak of Abraham. And that that a good way for us to comprehend our life in Christ is by considering who? Abraham. There's so much freight in this narratival story of Abraham. It's important that we notice the details. Because we're laying a foundation that will be built upon across the entire rest of the scope of Scripture. What we have here at the very, very beginning portion with Terah, Abram, Haran, and Nahor is the gospel, in essence. God does not come. And I I, I think, I may be wrong on this citation. Uh, You could Google it later. Don't get on your phone during a sermon. I think it was Benjamin Franklin, uh, it probably was. I mean, he always made pithy statements that caught electricity. But uh, I, I, I think um, uh, he, he was the one to say, uh, God helps those who help themselves. I, I, think, it's, uh, I think so. Uh, either way, whether it's him or your mom, you've heard it. You've heard it. But God does not come to merely aid and empower those who are already doing the heavy lifting of helping themselves. You must remember that because it's our default mode to think he does help those who help themselves. I need to do more. I'm not going to get aid because I've done wrong. I'm out of prayer touch because I'm not doing enough. It's our default mode. It's like I learned that when I was 12 and I moved on from legalism. No, no you didn't, no you didn't. And no, you won't. That's why you keep coming. Because we must hear these truths every day. God delivers, and we see it right here in the man who becomes the man of faith. We see it right here while he's living in his father's home in the land of Ur. That God delivers and saves precisely those who cannot help themselves. You you, you have to to grasp that and prayerfully lay it to conscience every time you take up the self-strength once again to persevere and make it happen on your own. In a frustrated theological existence, in a frustrated faith, you must revert back to the first fruits of the gospel. God is here by his mercy and grace to help precisely those who humbly admit they cannot help themselves. The Apostle John speaks of it this way, and I I love to go from the Old Testament Abraham stories into the New Testament and back and forth, back and forth, because we just see it is indeed a singular gospel announcement. It is but one covenant of grace. The Apostle John describes it this way when he writes, he says, quote, and again, this is a text you know, but I wish to break it down for you to say, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And so as a reader, you're saying, what is this? What does he mean? In this, the love of God, a way to comprehend. Does he love me? Does he not? Am I his child? Am I not? This is the way. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Well, what is this way? That he sent his only son into the world. So that we might live. Through him. You you see, take the concept that love is ambiguous and lacks definition. And it's more about how I feel about God. Uh, Well, that, that, that temperature changes hourly, beloved. Hourly. How can I measure the love of God? In this. What's this? He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He then further states it even clearer yet. In this is love. So so no ambiguity whatsoever. It's all being stripped down and ripped away. How might I measure it, rest upon it, receive it, and so be nourished by it? In this is love. It's not that we love God. That's not the measure of love. That's not my point of assurance and my anchor in the rock. John couldn't be clearer. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what's happening in Abram. This is love. God loved him. Similarly, Paul speaks of it in Romans 5. Another text you're undoubtedly familiar with, but I wish to remind you and encourage you with here. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And you say, but where do I see it? How has it been beheld? He shows it to you. It doesn't have to be driven on by sentiment. It can truly be seen. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we were no longer sinners and then he died for us. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. One author makes a comment this way, summarizing this thought from Paul. He says, quote, God loves us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. But to make us lovely. So it is with Abram, and so it is with you. Now, I want you to notice how the love of God is making Abram into something lovely. And and I'll I'll do it just for the next couple of moments, and then as you track through the brick and mortar of the text, you can think through your own providence. How God is at work in my life every single day. I I tell the kids that we're waking them up. uh, Well, a few things. Get up! You know, something like that. But then we say, hey, a, a day full of promise, And potential. God is at work. And he is making Abram lovely. I want you to see how he does so. Because often he does it as by analogy within our own lives. I think we all know that very well. But it often comes through bleak and difficult life circumstances. Hard is the road often in this age. And again, I, I, I think we all know that by experience, that's why we must receive the word of God as an authority in our lives and recall it to heart and to mind. Because providence is often in this age very difficult, often fraught with difficulty. Look at the first situation for Abram uh, within the text. You'll notice in verse 28, the first life situation that is bleak and very difficult uh, for the story of Abram is that his brother dies abruptly You see in verse 28, notice, uh, uh, it just starts, Haran died uh, in the presence of his father. Uh, He was one of three boys, and he died in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now again, you might not think too much of the detail of the thought. It kind of goes quickly, right? Uh, One of the three brothers dies in the land uh, of Ur, and he dies before his father dies course, to any parent, and we know a few and others outside of our own fellowship lose a child, there's just, the symmetry of that is wrong. It's extremely, extremely difficult to understand and to receive. It's a bleak situation, nonetheless, as we join into the text and identify how God works in people's lives. The resolve is more than just uh, the fact that uh, Heron dies in his father's household the result is worse. And the burden is now spread farther upon the rest of the family members, meaning this leaves three orphaned individuals. So a head of house dies, which is an enormous issue uh, in early societies, particularly of the patriarchal kind. He dies. It leaves Lot, Milka, and Iska as orphaned individuals. It's somewhere in the first 75 years of Abram's life. I don't know how old everyone is at the time within the text, but clearly Lot is then taken on in his grandfather's home. It's a difficult providence in Terah's family. Lot comes under the control of his grandfather. Milcah is then married off to her uncle. And you see that within the text in verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. So so Haran has died. Uh, he, had, he fathered Lot. Uh, he now has passed. Abram then takes a wife, and so does Nahor. The name of Abram's wife is Sarai, and of course we know her, and then the story develops. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And then we find out, indeed, it was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah. And then here we have yet the other one, which is Iscah. And that's the third piece to the hardship and the tragedy of the family home. Iska's future is unknown to us. We don't know what became of her. Kid, this is a bleak and difficult time in the home of Tara. I think it has implications in just a moment and I'll point them out to you. Number two... The other part is what we noticed last week. And that becomes the story. And that is Sarai, his other son, uh, Abram, his wife is barren. And then again, I mentioned to you the explicit nature of, uh, I want you to slow down on that. She's barren. And you're like, I get it. It's like, I don't think you do. She has no child. Meaning there's no physical, physical future for this family. So one son is passed. One son is married with no future, Uh, and uh, one son is simply left behind. That's the third difficult uh, and tough situation in this text. The third piece, again, uh, the brother dies and leaves three orphaned. Sarah is barren, there's no physical future for another son. And finally, and thirdly, uh, thirdly, his family fractures over it, and the household divides. which I don't think we're unknown to in human experience, that that difficulty creates a pressure tank. Uh, And and in tremendous moments of pressure, uh, people uh, tend to divide. Impulses, responses, reactions might be varied across people's constitutions and the way that they consider where they go from here in Providence. And these families are not unlike our own. We don't have an explicit reason as to why Tara packs up and leaves. But I think if we put together one plus one equals two, the family's in a really difficult spot. And maybe you've thought that about your own providence as time as God is working. Perhaps you've thought maybe he isn't working. And you thought what I need is a fresh new start. I need to get out of here and go over there. And I just need to be somebody new. I need to have a fresh start. We all have those impulses at times in our lives. I'm approaching one, I think. Uh, I think I should be approaching one in eight years, I, I think it's 50 when you start doing that. Uh, so, so maybe one day I'll come in and leather chaps and, 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 uh, and chains and a tank top, and you'll be like, he's going through something. I, I think they call that a midlife crisis. Uh, but but we, all, we all have these different elements within our lives, right? Where I feel the need to change, and, and maybe even make a radical change. And then before you know it, change has occurred, and it might not be the best change. But what we do know is that God is working. Uh, notice again uh, verse 31, Terah's response to all that took place so far and the bleak outlook of his family lineage going forward. Terah leaves the land of his kindred, which again might be different impulse, but Terah leaves. He takes Abram and he takes Lot, so he assumes responsibility for Lot, his grandson. And then Sarai, uh, who is with Abram, his daughter-in-law now, his his son Abram's wife, they leave and they went forward together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Then there's this interesting piece within the text, but when they came to Haran, they settled there instead. They just settled there. Um, You see, the movement away from, from Ur, seems to only end in more frustration for Terah, for Abram, for Lot, and Sarai. We, we thought of this before in the book of Esther. Again, we know very well in our own human experience, and it's a proverb for a reason, as I share it with you once again, to encourage you if you're in a tough spot right now. It might not seem encouraging, but I hope it to be. Things often do get harder. Before they get better. God is working. And that work can often be deep and multi-layered. It often is if we want real change. The journey for Terah and his family seems to end in more frustration. As you notice, they set out for a different location. They wanted to make it to Canaan. But they came to Haran. And again, we don't know why. But they settled There, instead of pressing on to Canaan, Terah, and by extension now, Abram, Sarai, and Lot settle in Haran. As one author mentions this progress this way, saying, Terah led them to yet another center of moon worship. Now, to be fair, Terah did take them roughly 550 miles northwest of Ur. I did a quick Google on that. Something to the effect of major cities within 500 miles of Pittsburgh. Just like, how far is that, you know, weighing that out? And he, he effectively made it to Boston from here. Um, a good long ways. And he took control and care of his family, and they journeyed a good long ways along the river. 550 miles, basically, to have a fresh new start. Yet, as is often with our own responses to difficulty and the need for immediate impulsive change, they are still in the wrong place with the wrong people following after the wrong gods. This is important that we receive the beginning of Abram's story this way. That it is a very, humanly speaking, a very bleak and difficult set of circumstances. Why is it so full of tragedy and hardship, confusion and now they've gone on a journey, didn't make it to where they intended and now are just going to settle in Heron, where they're still in the place of worshipping false gods. Why is it setting up this way? Well, I would submit to you that If we set these poor life choices, difficult circumstances, and situational disappointments for Tara and for the entirety of the family in context of God's sovereign grace, then the power of God's call upon his people is seen all the more. You you see, you ask, who is the main character of these events? It is God. God is the main character. God is working in these difficult sets of circumstances as he is working in yours. Again, isn't understanding God's sovereign grace in the presence of our difficulties in our lives or in the difficulty of Abram's life, isn't recognizing God and his power the point? Yes, indeed, it is the point. When Paul speaks of what God did in Abram's life, I'll simply read the text for you. You should jot it down and look at it later. Of course, you'd know it. It's Romans 4, a very popular text where you think of all the glorious things that happened in Abram's life and what that means for you as a Christian. But as we think of it in Abram, before we build the final bridge just to us and apply it directly to ourselves, we find Paul speaking of, yes, Adam, yes, that is the point. God is the point. His limitless power and grace is the point. He describes it this way when he's speaking of, uh, of Abram becoming a believer. He speaks of it this way. I read for you Romans four seventeen, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's Paul citing uh, what we'll get to in Genesis 17. Paul continues to say it this way. In the presence of the God in whom he believed... Then he speaks of Abram's belief this way, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not even exist. Isn't that the point? Indeed it is. Abram wasn't about hurrying about helping himself. God was helping him. He called, Paul literally draws upon the analogy of creation to speak of how Abram became a believer. It was by God's grace, but how so? Well, you know, the God who calls into existence things that don't even exist. One author speaks this way as we move along and work towards our conclusion now. He says, this dark introduction to the life of Abram is for one purpose, to profile the grace of God that is to follow. You see, when we find Abram in the text, I wish you to think of this and think of your own life as I try to remind my kids as I tell them, you're not very special. No one is in this house. Nobody's special. Everybody's ordinary. The faster you cope with that, the more success you have. Just recognize your role in life. And that's what we find with Abram. He is not special. There's absolutely nothing within the text that commends Abram to us any differently than his brother Nahor or Haran. Remember, Terah just simply had three sons. One of them dies, one of them fades to black, and one of them is called. We must ask why. Why was one of them called? Why was I called? What life does that commend me unto now that I have been called? God, out of his own grace, comes and chooses people who have done nothing to deserve it, beloved and he brings them into a saving relationship with himself. This is the essence of the story of Abram. This is the origin story of each and every one of you who this day call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest you revert to your legalism and impulsively think, God will help me if I help myself. That's law. It isn't gospel. I conclude with this comment from Calvin as we look to God's call upon Abram in Genesis 12 next week so that we will read it rightly as we approach it, coming with the freight and the baggage that Abram himself is bringing. We set out for Canaan, It was really difficult in Ur. We made it to Haran. And here we settled. Why do we have the story we have? Calvin comments. God designed in Abraham as in a mirror to make it evident whence and in what manner his church should forever arise. That's the story we have. God loves Abram. And God loves you. And it was demonstrated when he sent his only son that we might live through him who is the propitiation for our own sins. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we possess it, that you moved holy men along as they recorded and wrote, that you then canonized it, that we would identify it, that the word would identify us and that it would be bound and that we would have 66 canonical books, holy inspired and without error that we would not waste words, we would not waste phrases, we would labor under it and receive all of it, so thereby be fed, nourished, and empowered. Thank you for saving us by your grace, not by our human effort, so that when we lose our confidence, we don't revert to human effort. We repent and look to Christ in faith. I pray for anyone here, Father, use the word instrumentally by the Holy Spirit to convict each of us of sin and those who are outside of Christ to repent and lay hold of him for the very first time. To believe upon him for all that he is. Lord Jesus, be a savior unto those here who repent and believe. Nourish your saints this day upon this word, upon viewing yet again the sacrament of baptism. We praise you that you work and that we rest, O oh Lord. Provide, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll give you just a moment.